Women's Work is a special podcast production from Boise State Public Radio and the Mountain West News Bureau. And if you're liking this podcast so far, you might want to consider signing up for our weekly newsletter. You'll get sneak previews on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes photos and videos for my reporting. Head over to boisestatepublicradio.org slash newsletters. This episode of Women's Work was recorded on the ancestral lands of the Shoshone-Bannock tribes. For thousands of years, they hunted buffalo and other game, fished the rivers, and harvested plants and medicine across vast stretches of what is now Idaho, Oregon, Wyoming, Nevada, Utah, Montana, and even into Canada. The Fort Hall Reservation was created in southeastern Idaho in 1868 under the Fort Bridger Treaty, and the Shoshone-Bannock continue their cultural connection and stewardship of the land to this day. Things were settling down around camp after a long day of herding cows through the Idaho backcountry when Glenn Elzinga cupped his hand to his ear, put down his mug, and walked out of the cook tent into the black night. He'd heard something. Hey, guys. Hey, you guys. Huh? Come out here a second. We got wolves. Wait, really? Yeah. Just listen. His eldest daughter, Melanie, stands next to him. They're not far away. Buster. That's sound. Yeah. I sure hope we're not missing any cattle. Mm -hmm. No, I think we're good. Cool. What's going through your mind right now, Melanie, as you hear that? Oh, I mean, it's a little bit exciting, but it's also a little uncomfortable. I mean, I want to make sure these cattle are safe, and so definitely unsettling. Is there anything else you can do to prepare, or you, like you've, you've done everything? No, I mean, we're, we've got our human presence all over this. Our cattle are right there, um, so that they're close to us. Our horses are close to us. Um, so, yeah, I think we're pretty safe here. And if needed, if it comes to that, we do have firearms here in camp, so hopefully it won't. But that's our final backup plan, if need be. And we would, we would just use them to haze them off, unless if it really came down to it, so... Do you think you'll sleep tonight? Probably not super well. (laughs) The cows made it through the night okay. The wolves stayed up on the ridgeline away from camp, feeding on an elk carcass. But it's no surprise that Melanie and her dad didn't sleep too well. Wolves have cost the Elzingas thousands of dollars in lost cattle. They told me one year they lost 14 cows, worth more than $30,000. And their herd was just 200 cows at the time, so that was a big blow. It was the wolves, in fact, that forced this family to reevaluate how they ranch. The wolves were the tipping point, so to speak. They were the catalyst that actually made us look at everything completely differently. I'm Ashley Ahern, and this is Women's Work, stories about the changing face of ranching in the West. Now he is really pretty long, but I really want to keep him even. Glenn Elzinga is six foot six, so when he shoes a horse, he says the physics don't quite work. 
I watch him one morning at camp, his huge frame bent awkwardly beside a horse. He's using a metal rasp to file off the rough edges of the hoof, like you'd file a fingernail. Looking really good. Melanie's beloved gray horse, Gatto, stands calmly as Glenn digs around in his bucket of tools. Melanie trained him herself as a young girl. They actually just kind of grew together, you know? He was just... She was kind of crossing into adulthood. She probably don't want to hear me talk about this, but... And he was just cold and kind of didn't know nothing, and they kind of learned so much together, you know? Melanie's the eldest of Glenn and Carol Elzinga's seven daughters. Together, the family runs Alder Spring Ranch in central Idaho. So seven daughters. Seven daughters. Bet you've heard all the jokes. Oh, man. You know, were, were you trying for that boy? That's the favorite one, right? You know, what was funny is I actually prayed when Carol got pregnant and said, God, this is neat, but whatever you do, don't send me girls. Please. <laughs> and I wasn't being like weird or anything. I was like, don't send me. Because it's like, I was ra- I'm from a family of four boys. And boys were the only thing I knew. In this case, anyway, God wasn't taking requests. So anyway, they started coming. First came Melanie then Abby, then Linnea, then Emily, then Rebecca, then Annie, and finally, Maddie, or Mad Dog, as they call her. Still haven't figured out any of it, but... <laughs> you know, I, w- I mean, I don't say, boy, there's not a day when I say, oh, I wish I had those boys. You know, I have never thought that thought once, ever. Glenn is a forester by training, and his wife Carol has a PhD in botany. All the daughters help out on the ranch, whether it's herding cows, irrigating pastures, shipping meat orders, website design, photography, social media, you name it. There's a lot to do when you're raising more than 400 head of organic grass-fed beef cattle and selling your meat online to people all over the country. But wolves were threatening the business the Elzingas were trying to build. And I want to give some quick context here on wolves in Idaho. The long and short of it is, there are a lot of people who want them dead. Last fall, the state passed a law that actually incentivizes people to kill wolves. The Idaho Fish and Game Department now offers a bounty of up to $2,500 per dead wolf. Hunters can use bait, traps, dogs, and motor vehicles to make their kills. The law was broadly supported by the ranchers in this state because people's cows were getting killed. And that was happening to the Elzingas, too. The Elzingas grazed their cows on 70 square miles of sagebrush and timbered mountain slopes in the Salmon Chalice National Forest of central Idaho. They started ranching here 15 years ago. And at first, they were doing things the way most ranchers do. They'd let their cows loose on the range to graze in the spring, check on them throughout the summer, and then bring them in in the fall to send to market. It's a pretty hands-off approach. The cows are mostly left to themselves to choose where they graze and they can be easy prey for wolves. But when their fellow ranchers started killing wolves, the Elzingas thought there had to be another way to protect their cows. They couldn't afford to keep losing them, but they believed the wolves had a right to be there too. That's when Glenn says he had this idea. It came to him at Christmas time one year when the girls were little. 
we were Christmas caroling at a friend's house and they have a really neat log cabin. It's a beautiful, super cozy house. It was a cold night and um, their walls covered with all this Western memorabilia. You know, it might be old rifles or uh, ropes, lariats, uh, pieces of horse harness, horseshoes, a piece of barbed wire, <laughs> whatever, lanterns, you know, all kinds of stuff. And mixed in with the memorabilia were paintings by Charles M. Russell. He painted hundreds of oil and watercolor images that captured the iconic symbols of the Wild West back in the late 1800s to early 1900s. Cowboys in action, roping and throwing cows, their hats flying off, or trailing the herd on horseback through wide open country. He did peaceful paintings of dusky sage and orangey campfire scenes, bedrolls spread out under the stars, cowboys keeping watch over the herd at night. And I'm looking at all these pictures and my wheels start turning. I get in the, in the truck with Carol after singing at Roy Jeannie's. I said, what, did you see those paintings in there? She said, yeah, Charles Russell. I said, why can't we do that? And she said, what do you mean? I said, why can't we go live with our cattle? Because apparently it worked for them. They're basically just taking care of their cattle day in, day out on horseback. I said, why can't we do the same thing? And she said, maybe we could. Together, Glenn and Carol have been pioneering, or I guess you might actually say reviving, an age-old practice of guarding their livestock. It's called inherding. And it's basically exactly as Glenn saw in the paintings. Ranchers living and riding with their cows, day in and day out. Translating that idea, though, from a painting into on-the-ground livestock management wouldn't be possible without the Elsinga daughters. This is day two, heading out for the morning. Morning graze. Annie Elzinga is right in front of me. Melanie is riding the fence and trying to push the cows out the open area into their fresh grass for eating this morning. And another sister, Linnea, is uh, on a paint standing a little ways away watching them come out. So there's four other sisters that aren't here right now, but getting a taste of the Elzinga magic, moving cows together. So they do this every day. The sisters fan out around the herd and start pushing them up through the timber, letting the cows eat as they walk, like slow-moving lawnmowers. They don't let them stay for too long in any one place, though, so it doesn't get overgrazed. Come on, buddy. Hop up, hop up. I'm riding a big bay horse named Chang, and I'm holding my microphone and trying to help herd cows at the same time, which, for the record, is not a great combination. But Chang and I are making it work, and I catch up with Melanie and ask her what she's doing. So basically, we're just moving the cattle as a large herd across 70 square miles of rangeland. And we're keeping that, we try and keep them in a relatively tight bunch. It's kind of like the rotational grazing that Malloy and her mom, Megan, are doing in Montana, but on a much larger piece of land. And essentially, we're just, it's just one big, slow moving cattle drive for the entire day, for the entire summer, day in, day out. And, um, what we're trying to accomplish is just regenerating the land, getting our animals full, and protecting them from predators. We ride for hours, just following the cows across the open range, 
up sagebrush hillsides, down steep slopes thick with timber. The Elzingas started riding like this to keep their cows safe from wolves. But this kind of hands-on management has also brought some ecological benefits. At one point, a bunch of cows breaks free of the herd and makes a beeline for a lush green creek, or a riparian area as they're called. And Melanie takes off after them. So I'm following Melanie down a hillside into a creek bed. So they're all, all hands on deck, get them out. Melanie and her sisters race their horses through the trees to get the cows turned around and headed back uphill to rejoin the rest of the herd. They have them gathered up and out of the creek after just a few minutes. Why don't you want them in the water? You know, it's it's just, we want to protect these little riparian areas. Just, it's, it's nice to not have um, cattle coming in here and stripping down the vegetation and uh, potentially muddying a really pristine little spring that otherwise um, would flow. I mean, if they get in the creek, they're impacting wildlife habitat and fish habitat. And that's, that's our, we really don't want that to happen. But these little springs, if we can preserve them and not have our cattle graze them, that's, that's ideal, so. There are close to 70 miles of creeks and springs on the Elzinga's summer range. Before the Elzinga's started inherding, the cows would have free range to hang out in the wet areas like this one for as long as they wanted. And that was a problem. This whole area would be grazed down to nothing and also, they'd come back. So if we weren't careful, they'd remember that this was here. So later in the season, they'd be like, yeah, I'll go back to that spring and graze the forage down again. And that repeated grazing, that repeated impact um, was what led to long-term degradation in these spring areas. But the cows aren't getting away with that anymore. We ride up and out of the draw and push the herd into open hillsides of sagebrush and bunch grasses. There are mountains all around us though they're hazy with smoke from a wildfire burning near the Montana border. Things are drier and hotter this year than normal. The West is in the throes of a huge drought. And just looking down at this, it's, it's pretty brown. And Melanie points to a small, stunted plant next to Gatto's hoof. Yeah, that's, that's a bummer, because the, the Idaho fes fescue is just a great little uh, grass for us. The cattle really like to eat it. It's super nutrient-dense. It's, it's very palatable, because it's got these little fine leaves on it, little fine stems. And um, this year, not it's just not great. It's really short and pretty brown and dried out, so. Because of the drought, the Elzingas move camp more often, so they don't ever cover the same area twice. They're avoiding south-facing hillsides that get more sun stress. And they're planning to take their cows off the range completely almost a month ahead of schedule. Being out here, day in and day out with their cows, has made it possible for Melanie to watch the landscape closely and adapt the way she grazes it. She sits her horse and looks out over the sagebrush. On the ground next to her, a black Angus cow lounges, chewing its cud peacefully. Melanie loves this country, even as it changes and dries out. She's been riding it with her family since she was a little girl. I've been down pretty much every draw out here on horseback or on foot. And you know, it's just, it's become like an old friend. You, you recognize every feature. You, they're just so familiar to you. And like, it'll bring, I'll, I'll get up on top of one of those ridges and it'll bring tears to my eyes. I'll just start, I'm, <laughs> I'm tearing up now. Um, but it's just, it's just such, 
it's such a special place for us and um, we just love it. We love it like it's part of our family, as weird as that sounds. Wolves, Melanie says, are a part of the patchwork of this landscape. Without them, it's, it's not a whole, it's not the whole picture. We're missing something that's important. I mean, they have every right to be out here. They're part of this natural ecosystem. They've been here way longer than we have. All of the Elzinga sisters can ride, but they don't all necessarily want to be cowgirls. It's not for everyone, right? Riding the range day in and day out, eating camp food, sleeping in tents. As they figured out the in-herding program, Glenn and Carol realized that even with seven daughters contributing, they needed more help. So a few years ago, they created an internship program to recruit people from all over the country to come herd cows for the summer. Which is cool because Glenn and Melanie and the other sisters now get to teach these newcomers their methods. Some of them have never even ridden a horse before. Glenn says he wouldn't be preaching this gospel of in-herding if he wasn't seeing the results. You know, we started doing this with the wolves and because of the wolves. But when we saw the plant results and the wellness that then we can convey to our beeves because of the plant diversity we're getting that we didn't have before, it's a no-brainer. Since they started in-herding, Glenn says they've seen a huge increase in plant growth and wildlife in the riparian areas that snake through their land. Beavers have returned, now that there's plenty of willow and aspen because the cows aren't munching it away. I saw a sage grouse and her chicks in one of the lush creek beds we rode across. There's elk, trout, rattlesnakes, salamanders, so many different birds, and of course, wolves. Instead of dusty, stressed sagebrush, this range, even in a drought, has a lot of plant diversity, and that makes it more resilient to dry times. The sun drops behind the mountains, and we turn the cows for home. The Elzingas keep their cows enclosed overnight, and they pump water from a nearby creek into troughs, instead of letting the cows trash the creek banks. Chang, stop. Buddy. Chang is pretty excited about going home, too. He's prancing around like a jerk while I try to record. Chang! <laughs> Glenn's up on a ridge calling to his cows, and I swear they're moving back as they mosey home for bed. And fanned out around them are Glenn's daughters, Melanie, Linnea, and Annie. And they're laughing and singing, and their cowgirl hats are jaunty, their faces smiling as their sturdy horses scoot down the steep sagebrush hillside, golden in the setting sun. Perhaps a newer, more feminine version of an iconic Charles M. Russell painting. On our next episode, the vast majority of ranches in the West are owned by white people. And the vast majority of that land was taken from Native Americans, one way or another. We're going to meet a rancher in eastern Washington who's wrestling with that history in relation to her own family's land. I know the history of how I came to own it. And it wasn't because I went and put a gun up against somebody's head. But it was because somebody 
went and put a gun up against somebody's head. Women's work is edited by Whitney Henry Lester. Sound design is by Liza Yeager. Art for the series is by Katie Michael. And special thanks to the Shoshone-Bannock tribes for guidance on the land acknowledgement you heard at the beginning of this episode. <laughs>